Two and a Half Admins, episode 16. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you want to plug your ZFS webinar, Alan? Yes, I'm doing a ZFS best practices webinar on November 18th. So that's coming up quite soon. So uh, follow the link in the show notes and uh, sign up and hope to see you there. So the news that seems to be dominating at the moment is the announcement of the ARM Max from Apple. We knew this was coming. They had that developer kit that you could lease from them, but now you can actually buy three different Macs, all powered by the same system on a chip that they're calling the M1. What do we make of these then? We don't know what to make of them until we actually get our hands on them because, you know, true to form, all Apple has said are really useful things like, it's so pro and what can't you do with an M1 CPU? And up to X cores. I'm like, so how many does it actually have? <laughs> I can actually answer that one. Um, so far, all the variants of the M1 are eight CPU cores. What changes is the number of GPU cores, and they didn't specify during the presentation. But since then, it's uh, um, they've they've added specs to the website. You can buy a uh, MacBook Air with either seven GPU cores or eight. The MacBook Pro and the Mac Mini both have eight, no matter what, right now. Odd to have an odd number. Like you would expect it to be like two, four, eight cores, not seven. Isn't that just one failed during manufacturing? Entirely possible. Or one disabled during manufacturing for artificial price segmentation would honestly be my guess. Well, I'm guessing right. the yield is more likely to be a, a reason for it. Like I'm sure if their yield was good enough, they would disable some if demand for the cheaper one was higher. But it does seem like a good out for when your production isn't perfect. I mean, I guess anything's possible, but, uh, you know, you're getting eight CPU cores every time, no matter what. It, it seems like, right. it seems, it seems kind of odd to be like, oh, we've got plenty that are, you know, all eight CPU cores are fine, but we've got tons of them that one GPU core failed. Eh, maybe seems a little odd to me. Yeah, I guess it's, it's different when you're Apple and you're doing it yourself when you only have a small number of SKUs. Whereas, you know, when you're Intel, you're like, yeah, we, if we try every processor we try to make is the top one. And sometimes it doesn't work out and we sell it as a cheaper one, but that doesn't really work in Apple's case. They made all sorts of claims about performance, about it being 2.5 times faster. And they had various graphs with no labeled axes and stuff, which is just, it just, there was nothing useful in that presentation, really. No, there was not. It's it's all weaselly crap. And again, uh, I was the most irritated about the GPU claims. Those were the absolutely most weaseled out of all of them. And, you know, even once they put the footnotes up on the actual website, it, they didn't help because they said that, uh, you know, the GPU could be up to two times faster than uh, market-leading laptops that were commercially available at the time of testing using specific industry benchmarks. But they didn't say what that benchmark was. They didn't say what laptop they were testing against. And even the claim that, you know, these were the highest performing commercially available, we still don't know because Iris XE is may or may not anymore be the highest performing integrated GPU in the world. It certainly was before the M1 dropped and it was kind of commercially available and kind of not because, uh, you know, it was already, uh, systems are already being built with, uh, Iris XE and Intel Tiger Lake CPUs. As of October, 2020, when that testing was done, you could buy those systems as a consumer, but you would not have actually received one in your hot little hands yet. So, is M1 actually faster than the world's fastest integrated GPU or is it, you know, potentially considerably slower? Because 
RSXE, you know, beat the uh, the former world champion integrated GPUs by a pretty healthy margin, like 40%. Also, the other thing about the whole GPU claim, because I'm not done being salty about that yet, um, <laughs> that up to 2.5 times faster was also at a specific undisclosed power target. Huh. So, um, you know, it might have been 2.5 times faster at 10 watts or 18 watts or 25 watts or, you know, heck, three watts. I don't know. Who knows? 2.5 times faster when plugged into the wall. <laughs> Yeah, it's up to two and a half times faster than an unspecified GPU using an unspecified benchmark at an unspecified but very specific limited power rating. So, yeah, that's helpful. Well, because like this other graphic here for just, I think, the MacBook Pro, and it's like up to five times faster graphics. But then what? Then the last one? Uh, I think that one actually was then the last one, yes, which was not a particularly fast GPU. Okay. Because I see six times for the um, Mac Mini. We're going to have to wait for this, aren't we? We're going to have to wait till it actually gets into the hands of reviewers. Are you going to get one of these, Jim? I am. Uh, I am supposed to get one of the Mac Minis. Um, I really would have preferred to get one of the MacBook Airs, but um, one of our other folks on the team is getting the MacBook Air, our actual uh, Apple guy. And um, another one of our folks just outright bought a MacBook Air, but he won't be getting it in, until uh, next month, I think. Right. Um, the minis, on the other hand, it's really easy to get one of. There's there's way less demand for them. And it, it doesn't really matter much for my purposes because I don't really care about the Apple ecosystem. What I'm interested in is, you know, this just sea change in the industry that this is, you know, kind of a beachhead for. And I can test that on a Mac mini as easily as I could on an Air. Yeah. Good luck trying to install Linux on it, eh? I do not believe I will even be attempting to do that yet. Yeah. I mean, there's just no point, is there? No, there's really not. The interesting thing is going to be trying to figure out how can I meaningfully benchmark something that is not only an ARM device, not only a Mac, but a Mac ARM device, you know, against wildly different ecosystems to get, you know, a really good picture of what the performance is like. And that's that's not going to be simple. You can use Homebrew and FIO against the SSD, but that does not really benchmarking the rest of the machine. <laughs> oh, wow. The SSD that actually hasn't really changed and it isn't anything special. Yeah, it's not helpful. It's it's the CPU and the GPU architecture I'm really interested in. Well, they're claiming that they're going to get extra performance out of these SSDs, aren't they? They are. We'll see. Um, one way or another, that's not really the big thing that I'm particularly interested in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're not buying the brand new ARM Mac for the SSD. No. I mean, one thing that I will certainly be able to do is I can, you know, I can run Geekbench for the Mac under Rosetta. Uh, the pro there is it's under Rosetta and people will be very interested in, you know, how non-ARM native applications actually run these things. Mm. The con is it will be under Rosetta. So that's not really a benchmark of native, you know, ARM performance. Off the top of my head, the first thing that jumps to mind, even though it's very task specific and not, you know, a, a truly diverse benchmark is, you know, let's let's decompress some Linux source trees and compress some Linux t- source trees. Uh, that'll give a, a pretty decent overall impression. If you use the Z standard command line tool, there's a benchmark mode that tries each of the different 19 or 20 something compression levels, compresses a random set uh, with each of them, or you can provide your own file and it'll compress it with each of the different levels and show you the compress and decompress rates. Ooh. I'd be tempted to do some JavaScript benchmarks in the browser because... Let's face it, these are surely going to be low-end machines that are not going to be any good for content creation, like serious content creation. I know they said you can have two 4K streams or whatever, but its I, I'm just not having it. I think they're going to be a lot more capable than you're giving them credit for, Joe. 
People have been doing a hell of a lot of content creation on iPad Pros, and these are going to be significantly faster than iPad Pros. Well, I suppose. But I, I remain to be convinced. There are real ARM CPUs now that are like, you know, gigahertz for gigahertz as good as Intel stuff and AMD stuff. It's it's not like it was before. I don't know if I'd go that far to say, you know, they're, they're gigahertz for gigahertz or, you know, whatever crude comparison you want to go with there. But they're certainly competitive. They're very different. They're competitive. It's, it's really hard to figure out how to, how to say this accurately and yet, uh, you know, approachably. But basically, the top performance crown still goes on the x86 side, uh, especially when you talk about modern Epic CPUs. The really big thing, once you're talking about like data center type stuff, you know, like these 80 core, you know, ARM CPUs, is they are way, way, way more predictable in performance. You can run uh, the the exact same benchmark twice on an Epic or a Xeon and get pretty substantially different results when it's a really big multi-threaded benchmark where you'll get the exact freaking same one every time on the ARM CPU because it's not doing as much of this, you know, crazy branch predictive stuff. Well, and also it's not scaling the CPU speed up and down all over the place and trying to work in a power budget. Yeah. Although macOS is going to assign different tasks to the various different cores because you've got four high performance and four lower performance, like energy saving cores or whatever, the big little style. Yep. Big little design. It's uh, it's four up, four down. Um, and come on, Joe, Apple would like you to know that those are high efficiency power cores and high power cores. Nothing's low. There, there are no low anything there. Come on. Just my expectations, eh? Okay, this episode is sponsored by TrueNAS from iX Systems. Go to TrueNAS.com. TrueNAS and FreeNAS have now unified as TrueNAS, the number one open storage OS. TrueNAS uses the power and reliability of OpenZFS to bring open source economics to enterprise-grade unified storage with support for file, block, object, and app storage. You can use the free TrueNAS Core Edition or invest in a TrueNAS Enterprise system. Coming soon is TrueNAS Scale, which provides open hyperconverged infrastructure with support for Linux containers, and you can follow the development, try out, and contribute to this exciting project. Check out TrueNAS.com and see how TrueNAS can support your next storage project, whether it's just a few terabytes all the way up to multiple petabytes. That's TrueNAS.com. Let's talk about Google then, and Google Photos specifically. Their unlimited plan where you can have high quality backups from your phone is going to go away in June. Who could have possibly seen this coming? The unlimited has limits? What? Yeah, so they're not just going to store all of my photos and videos for free forever in a slightly lower resolution than I took them in. Very slightly, honestly, because the limits for what Google considered high quality were 16 megapixel for still images or 1080p for video. Really, the big thing there, the big limitation was not so much the resolution, it was the compression. Uh, you, you cannot store raw and, you know, have it be called high quality. Those are original quality or anything that's above those pretty generous resolutions also gets, you know, called original quality. And those already went under your overall Google storage cap, which every Google account has 15 gigs of storage allocated. And that's a pool that's divvied up between Gmail storage, Google Drive and photos. Up until now, high-quality photos or lower didn't go against that cap. Beginning in June, they will. And it's important to note that your existing photos, uh, they're grandfathered in. So if you've got five terabytes of you know uh, JPEGs that you uploaded, um, those will continue to be on your Google Drive or Google Photos or whatever you want to call it, and you will not be billed for them. It's only going to apply to new stuff saved or backed up after June. So what you might want to do is 
do a Google takeout of everything they've already got, create a new Google account specifically for this, upload them all, and then sign into that account on your phone, and then only use that for photos and don't use it for Google Drive and Gmail, and you'll get a little bit more for free. No, you don't need to do all that. Just, you know, upload everything you possibly freaking can before June, and it will continue to be there and not count against your cap. Yeah, but I've got a load of stuff in my Gmail and Drive. It's the problem on my main account. But really, I'm going to start doing it on my local network. I put a tweet up just before we started recording asking for advice from people, and it seems like SyncThing is the best bet for this. I didn't realize you could get SyncThing for Android, even through F-Droid, so I'm going to definitely look into that. Almost all of my uh, my Google storage is Gmail because I, I just don't care to use them for anything else. Um, actually, in theory, so I do have a lot of photos there because I did allow my my phone to back up all of my photos to uh, to Google. But um, none of that's going to change for me even after June, because that's the other thing we didn't mention is Pixel users will still get unlimited high quality photo storage for now. Uh, there's no sunset date on that. Eventually, I'm sure that will go away as well. But uh, not in June. I'm guessing, though, if you're running a custom ROM, you're probably not included in that free offer, though. That's an excellent question. I don't really know how they're detecting or deciding who's got a valid pixel. Because if you run in Lineage, it knows. I mean, I, I always get an, an email every time I flash a new ROM. It says, uh, welcome to your OnePlus 6 or whatever. So the device definitely identifies itself. But I would imagine they probably won't give you the free storage. But even if they do, it's only going to be for a limited time because there's no such thing as unlimited free. Well, there's no such thing as unlimited anything. Exactly. Like any provider that has uh, an unlimited offer has a clause in the terms of service that says, you know, we're not going to put up with it. If you abuse it, we'll just close your account. And for a lot of those, uploading more than they want to pay to store for you is abuse. The acronym here is Tonstoffel. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> With my video streaming business, we get people all the time being like, well, if we use this one over here, they it's like, you know, 30 bucks a month and you get unlimited streaming. And it's like, yeah. And if you have more than 50 people watching, they're going to turn it off because it turns out that costs money. <laughs> Bandwidth is not free. And you end up with the things like, I remember when all the podcast, video podcasts and so on were using blip.tv because for, you know, 15 bucks a month, creators got unlimited storage and, and hosting for their videos until one day they're just like, oh, we ran out of money. It's all gone now. What about something like Libsyn though, where that is unlimited bandwidth? You know, you pay your whatever it is, 15 bucks a month and you have a certain amount of storage per month and then it can be downloaded as much as possible. Well, there's a charity involved there. Uh, and partly it is, I think if your usage was too high, they would contact you and be like, Hey, you either need to pay us more money or go somewhere else. Yeah. I think they do kind of force you onto the pro plan if you use too much bandwidth there. But also that is based on the fact that there's 5 billion podcasts, most of which only have a handful of listeners and they are subsidizing those of us who actually have some listeners. That's the way all these free or unlimited or whatever services always work. They're relying on you not to actually take advantage of the terms they've offered. It's like AT&T's unlimited, you know, bandwidth every month. It turns out unlimited actually means 22 gigs. And if you go over that, we'll just rate limit you to the point where you can't use anymore. Yeah, well, I had a friend who was using a mobile connection. I think he used like 300 or 400 gigabytes in one weekend streaming Netflix and stuff. And they just shut his account down. <laughs> yeah, Terms of Service says if you use too much, if, if, you, if we're not making money off you, we're not going to keep your account open. Yeah. All right, a quick one then. And that is that 
GitHub source code was kind of leaked, but then it wasn't leaked. It was all just a bit of a non-story, but it's not quite a non-story because something came to light, which people already knew about, but not many people. Explain this, please, Jim. The news broke that GitHub source code had leaked. It had been uploaded to GitHub's own DMCA repository, apparently by Nat Friedman, CEO of GitHub. Now, everything about this really turns out to be non-news. The actual leak was not GitHub's own source code. It was the source code for GitHub Enterprise Server, which GitHub has always made available to its paying customers who have, you know, bought GitHub Enterprise Server. The difference there is that normally that source code goes out uh, a little bit obfuscated and stripped, and they accidentally sent out some, you know, completely in the clear tarballs. That was what got uploaded. So not a big deal there. Nobody really has the source code to GitHub. They have the source code to GitHub Enterprise Server. No compromise was involved. It was something GitHub had actually sent their customers. No big deal, right? But then we move on, and where it was actually uploaded was to GitHub's own DMCA repository. Now, if you've ever uh, searched Google for an image or, you know, whatever, and gotten that little notice down at the bottom about chilling effects with a link to a list of DMCA takedowns, you know, to things that otherwise would have been indexed, the DMCA repository on GitHub is the equivalent of that. Every time GitHub receives a DMCA takedown request, they add a copy of that request to that DMCA repository. Obviously, not just anybody in the world can make a commit to that repository. You need to actually be a GitHub employee to have commit privileges. So then the next question is, okay, you know, how did some random person commit something to that? And then beyond that, whoa, Nat Friedman made that commit. Like, you know, I I see his picture. I see his account. If I click that, like I actually go to Nat Friedman's real profile page. Did the CEO of GitHub's credentials get compromised? And the answer, again, ends up being completely no. Um, Alan, do you want to take over from there and explain how that works? So with Git, everything's this, you know, tree of hashes. So if you fork the repo, uh, like, for example, if you start by forking the OpenZFS repo, which is the repo that provides the source code for ZFS on Linux and FreeBSD. Completely hypothetically. Yeah. So hypothetically, if I fork that into my own repo, that ends up as github.com slash alanjude slash ZFS. Uh, and I can commit stuff there. But of course, because of the way Git works, if you just on the command line put dash dash author and then somebody else's name, then you can offline author the commits with that name. And then push them up to GitHub and it'll look like that person did the commit, not you. But again, that's still only going to show up in Alan Jude slash ZFS. Uh, but it turns out because it's a fork and basically to save space and deduplicate and so on, uh, Git and or GitHub knows that those things are related. So if you take that commit hash and tack it onto a URL that's the official, say, open ZFS repository, but reference a commit that only exists in my personal copy of the repo, then it'll show up. You can give a link to people that looks very much like that commit just landed in the official repo. To be clear, um, when when Alan says that uh, you know they're, they're kind of in the same thing, what we're talking about here is when you fork a repository, you're actually creating a child that still belongs to the same parent repository under the hood in Git. So when you reference the hash for something that you commit in your own personal fork, 
that actually is a child of the original parent repository. It's a fork, not a complete like block for block copy out elsewhere. Yeah, just like a, a clone in ZFS, the blocks that are the same are shared. And, it, you, you know, your your fork only contains the couple of commits that are unique to you. Uh, and it's still related to the original repo. So if you go to the original repo and look for one of those hashes, it finds it without having to know that that's in a different repo because it's all in the back end in one big bucket. Now, to be clear, if, if you're just browsing the parent repository, like, for example, if we were to start out with the OpenZFS repository, if you just browse it, you're not going to find a commit to Alan's private fork as you're browsing that on github.com. Mm -hmm. However, if you happen to know the hash that's associated with that commit that Alan made to his own personal fork of the OpenZFS repository, you can kind of graft that into an URL that's based on the main repository and it will just resolve and work. So what you're seeing on github.com appears to be a commit that was main to the OpenZFS repo. Even though the actual ZFS repo doesn't contain that code at all. And the commit wasn't authored by who it's, it, it wasn't necessarily authored by who it says it is. And, you know, like uh, the original article talks about, is, uh, GitHub supports signed commits where you can have, you know, you can prove that that person actually made the commit, although people can still put that person's name on unsigned commits. You have to look for something that says that it was a signed commit. Um, if somebody makes an unsigned commit, there's no big, ugly, like, you know, oh my goodness, this person always signs their commit and this one's not signed. Uh, it's very much a case of you have to know what you're looking for and look specifically for it, unfortunately. Um, you can't set up a repository such that only signed commits are possible either. Uh, you can't do a GitHub one that way, or maybe you can. Uh, but with regular Git, you can do pre-commit hooks that say, you know, if the commit's not signed, it can't actually be pushed and so on. But that's kind of beyond the scope here. But anyway, look in the show notes for Alan Trolls Greg KH, and uh, <laughs> you'll see what we're talking about. Our ZFS fans will absolutely appreciate that one. It is worth looking for, I promise. Okay. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into your Linux environment. By uniting metrics and events from servers, databases, applications, and more, Datadog can easily give you a unified view into your entire infrastructure. Easily identify hidden sources of latency, like overloaded hosts, by monitoring server metrics alongside application data. With machine learning-based alerts and features like anomaly detection, Datadog can also help you to monitor and alert on the health of your servers in real-time without alert fatigue. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash 25admins. Start your trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash 25admins. Let's do a bit of free consulting then. If you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan, you can do so via email, show at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who is supporting us on Patreon. It really is appreciated. If you want to join those people, go to 2.5admins.com. There's links there. And remember, for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And once we get to our goal of $500 a month, we'll go weekly with these episodes. So do support us. So... Maya, I think it's pronounced, sorry for butchering your name, writes to us, I'm starting my career as a sysadmin. My question is, should I start using and learning Debian or CentOS? I will try to use and learn both of them, but which one should I master and why? 
Easy answer, Debian, because the vast majority of anything that you do in the cloud will be based on a Debian-based distribution and almost nothing will be Red Hat in the cloud. Uh, the only thing that you're really going to get out of mastering CentOS is an ability to work as, you know, a Red Hat enterprise Linux person, which is absolutely of use, but it won't take you very far in the cloud. It's only very specifically going to help you in Red Hat shops. Yeah, so the CentOS stuff is more enterprisey, run the same version for a long time, and try not to have things change. So I think Debian's definitely going to have a lot more for you to learn and be uh, more exposure to new stuff. You know, the whole point of CentOS is to avoid exposure to new stuff. Uh, yeah. And, you know, when you're trying to learn, you definitely want to start where the more interesting stuff is. But again, you know, even just in terms of market penetration, um, Cloud versus on-prem seems like a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're just starting out your career, you absolutely want to be aimed at the cloud. And if you're aimed at the cloud, RHEL or CentOS is not the answer. Yeah. And once you learn Debian, dealing with RHEL will be easier. It's also usually easier to learn the new thing and then go back to the old thing rather than learn the old one and then have to learn all this newfangled stuff. Yeah, I agree with that. I would, I would also personally submit that um, I think... So basically, the first distribution you learn is going to be the one that you invest the most skull sweat in because you're starting from nothing. With that said, it makes sense to start with, you know, something that's a little bit easier, a little bit more sane and coherent and save the weird stuff for later. And I personally would argue that Debian tends to be more sane and coherent and easy to deal with than RHEL um, yeah. because it doesn't have the same focus on extreme legacy compatibility that RHEL does. Uh, RHEL is basically, you know, the Microsoft of the Linux world. And I don't mean that pejoratively, but I do mean that in the sense that both uh, Red Hat and Microsoft focus very much on catering to enterprises that don't ever want to change anything. And that eventually means that your system gets kind of crufty and, and kind of weird and things don't always hang together in, in the most coherent way possible. Debian does not have that same focus um, it's not always just massively forward focused to be, you know, the most bleeding edge possible. But if something in Debian has gotten like old and weird and doesn't fit with the rest, they're not really afraid to remove it either. And I would say Debian has more resources around being self-taught and kind of beginner stuff. Whereas RHEL is like, if you want to learn that, there's some courses you can go pay for. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Debian and Ubuntu have a lot more in the way of uh, getting started stuff and and help in that regard. We keep saying Debian, and you said Ubuntu there, Alan. I mean, isn't that really what we're talking about here? It's, okay, Debian-based, and the Debian, you know, Debs and Apt and everything, but really we're talking about Ubuntu here. We kind of are, but if the whole idea is that you're wanting to start out with, you know, this, this broad kind of parent class of a whole bunch of things, there is absolutely no question that Debian is the parent of Ubuntu. Um, practically speaking, whichever one you've learned, you've learned like 99% of the other one. There is almost no time ever that I'm, you know, I have this feeling like, oh no, I'm sitting behind a Debian prompt instead of an Ubuntu prompt. I mean, it's, it's the same thing for almost anything that you want to do. With CentOS though, you don't actually have to use CentOS. You can get a free license for RHEL if you are a developer, I think, and I don't think they check your credentials very um, thoroughly. If you're just looking to learn and use it for personal use like that, then you can get full-blown RHEL. You absolutely can. The question is, why bother? 
Yeah, the only time that's useful is if you're purposely trying to train to do RHEL to go work at an enterprise that uses RHEL. And like Jim said, you're probably better off learning the cloud stuff. You can always manage servers where they don't want to upgrade except for once every five years when you know how to do the more advanced stuff or just modern stuff. Yeah, and so to clarify this for folks who aren't quite as buried into the ecosystem as uh, I and you know maybe Alan are, of course, you know, he's that BSD guy, so this is all kind of whatever for him. When you're talking about CentOS versus RHEL, it's the same thing. CentOS is RHEL without the branding and without the license restriction and paywall and whatever. And yes, uh, Joe is correct. You can get fees waived and get like developer only, you know, versions of RHEL. But just why bother? CentOS originally evolved as a separate project where people outside of Red Hat downloaded all the source code and built it all themselves and made a Red Hat clone. But when that project kind of got wonky, you know, in its elderly stages, Red Hat made the excellent and very forward thinking decision to acquire the project and rather than killing it, just do the exact same thing themselves. So Red Hat builds both Red Hat Enterprise Linux and the, you know, free community, whatever, non-paywalled, non-buyer uh, license, you know, CentOS. I don't really know of anything that I would say, well, you learned CentOS, but, you know, now you've got some extra learning to do because it's RHEL time now. Now, if you know how to do it in CentOS, you know how to do it in RHEL. I mean, literally the only thing is like the extra repo for the security updates or whatever that, that the stuff you get via the Red Hat subscriber network or whatever it's called. Yeah. RHEL and CentOS are actually even closer than Debian and Ubuntu. And I just got done saying that once you know either Debian or Ubuntu, you effectively know both of them. Yeah. So what about BSD then? Just don't bother. That's uh, yesterday's news. Eh, that stuff's crap. <laughs> you know, it's definitely worth learning. But if you're already focusing on Linux, then, you know, I'm not going to try to dissuade you from that. You sound defeated, Alan. Nope. <laughs> So, so being more serious, um, you know, if, if you're getting into this stuff and you want to build a career and you want to understand, you know, a broad swath of things rather than just like diving into one narrow little niche that you're going to work in, you absolutely should play with, uh, you know, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, whatever, at least grab one BSD distribution and get your feet relatively wet in it because it's going to come in handy. One of these days you are going to encounter a BSD shop of some kind or a BSD machine. And it'll be nice if you already got some familiarity with it. But even above and beyond that, just the fact that you're learning something that is significantly different while accomplishing a lot of the same tasks and even using a lot of the same, you know, software on top of the stack. Like you, if you want to run a web server, you're probably going to be running either Apache or Nginx, whether you're on Linux or whether you're on BSD. And it absolutely will broaden the scope of your general you know, Unix beardly knowledge if you've approached that from both sides and you're not just completely locked into the Linux world. Exactly. You know, so we used to have a saying that Linux and BSD people make the best Windows administrators because they actually understand more of the moving parts underneath that are hidden by default in Windows. But because they've had to deal with it in another operating system, they understand how that concept still applies to other operating systems, even if the commands you run or whatever are actually slightly different. Linux and BSD folks know why that file is in C colon backslash Windows backslash system 32 backslash et cetera backslash drivers backslash hosts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, isn't it drivers etc? But anyway. Oh, you're right. Drivers, et cetera. I said that backwards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, the pipe and the redirect thing, where those came from. 
things like that. But also, you know, just in general, the concept of if the machine's wonky and rebooting fixes it, sure, that fixes the problem, but you haven't figured out what the problem is and it's going to go wonky again. Surely with Windows, you're administering it all with GUI tools anyway. Not necessarily. I can type a hell of a lot faster than click. Yeah, that's that's a really complicated um, bit of bait to answer properly. <laughs> You're actually supposed to do heavyweight Windows administration from the command line these days. and Yeah, that's why they made PowerShell. Yeah, if you drink the Kool-Aid, um, then oh, you can do everything from Windows on the command line. You absolutely should. Um, if you're in an enterprise environment, Maybe if you're in a small business environment, almost certainly no, that's not actually going to work out well for you. It comes down to if you need to add one or two new users, sure, click through the GUI, it's fast. If you have a giant CSV file of a, a hundred students you need to add to the to the Active Directory, writing a script is probably a better use of your time. Or handing it over to an unpaid intern. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you in two weeks.